Welcome back to the Surfacing Leaders Podcast, where you can come along with nuclear submarine officer, sought-after turnaround CEO and founder of Lead with Purpose, Mark Kohler, as he tells the stories of leaders in unlikely places and the human spirit that drives us all to show us that anyone can learn to be a leader. And now, here's Mark Kohler. Jeff Korzenik is chief economist for one of the nation's largest commercial banks and a prominent advocate of fair chance, second chance hiring. A regular guest on CNBC, Fox Business News, and Bloomberg TV, his perspective on the economy, markets, manufacturing, and the workforce are frequently cited in the financial and business press. He is an award-winning writer whose work has been published in the Wall Street Journal, Newsweek, Harvard Business Review, The Hill, and other outlets. Jeff is the author of the groundbreaking book, Untapped Talent, How Second Chance Hiring Works for Your Business and the Community. In recognition of his work on the interaction of the criminal justice system and the labor markets, Jeff was elected to membership in the Council of Criminal Justice. Jeff is a graduate of Princeton University with an AB in economics and a certificate of proficiency in Near Eastern Studies. Jeff, I'm excited to invite you and have you on the Servicing Leaders podcast. Welcome. Thank you. Thrilled to be with you and your listeners today. So Jeff, we always start off by getting to learn a little bit more about who you are. And uh, so if you could start off with your, your story, where you're born and bring us to today, that would be fantastic. Sure. Well, I'll try to give the shortest uh, version of that. Uh, raised in Hartford, Connecticut, uh, went off to college in Princeton, uh, did a short stint in London, and then my career in financial services revolved around Chicago, uh, New York, and Boston. And I've 30 plus years uh, of talking about the economy and, and the markets. And most recently, I've been with a uh, large commercial bank one of the largest in the country, the largest commercial banks in the country, and I'm their chief economist. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. So when you think back upon, you know, your time and, and your journey, you came to the bank and and there wasn't really the role that you currently have right now. Yeah, I, I, I got to the bank. They had a very strong chief investment strategist, but they didn't have someone who talked too much about the economy. It was more very market focused. And they, although they obviously have to do with each other, markets and the economy are two different discussions and requires some expertise. So uh, I was very fortunate. I've worked with some absolutely great people who are willing to innovate and, and embrace change, built a new role. At the time it was pitched as the chief market strategist. I ended up becoming the chief investment strategist and having a chief market strategist work with me. And we somewhat divided up the world. I tended to talk the economy. He has talked the markets. And we obviously work really closely together. And then I became officially the first chief economist in my bank's 165-year history this year. And as a result of another, another discussion and embrace of change and, and always focused on meeting the needs of our customers. So where did this, where did this passion, you know, come from to be, to be an economist? We always have like things that have shaped and formed us, you know, maybe when we were young, someone said something to us, where did this passion come from to become an economist? Yeah, I, I think we economists are puzzle solvers by nature. 
And I, I remember even back in high school, as gas prices were soaring, having a discussion with some of my fellow students who were in an economics class, I was not in high school, and saying, well, why doesn't the government just set the price of gasoline or just cap the price of gasoline? They said, it's not as simple as that. And that stuck with me. And when I went uh, off to Princeton, I took an Econ 101 course and absolutely loved it, felt it came to me very naturally and loved the the science of trade-offs and understanding how one action has implications and often unexpected implications and consequences. And it, it, I, I read the Wall Street Journal every day starting in, in college and still read it, start to still read it today. And then was very fortunate to, uh, I, that became my major in college. I was particularly interested in the interplay of culture and economics, which is not a typical economic field, but I think is an important one. And I wrote my, my senior thesis was over hundred pages long, and it was written on cultural barriers to charging interest. So I talked about Islamic law, I talked about Soviet economic models, and then the old sort of Western accusations of the sin of usury. And I, I, I know I started by my senior thesis with a poem by Ezra Pound about usury. So not your typical economic talk. And, and I've tried to approach this with a little bit of an atypical lens, but one that I think has added value. When you think about you know, your role right now, it would be great if you could tell us what your role is currently at the bank. I know you're the first one in the over the last hundred years and you finally achieved that this year, but what is your role at the bank? You know, in many ways, the role hasn't changed much, but the title has changed and we've just made it official that my role is to help our customers understand important economic trends and add value to their lives and their business by, by, by doing so. Uh, sometimes that means seeing a light at the end of the tunnel. So back in the worst of 09, when the world looked like it was coming apart, I wrote an, I did research and wrote an op-ed that was ultimately published in the Chicago Tribune. I talked about this was just the, this was a special kind of recession called a financial panic and was the 15th such recession in the history of the United States. So people had some context for it, which people found very valuable. Sometimes it's addressing, I did something parallel, by the way, when COVID came about. I had fortunately studied about the Spanish flu pandemic just because I was interested in the potential threat of Ebola at the time. And so came into it well-prepared to talk about this and to understand that there were parallels. And we actually dug back into economic history and market history and, and looked at the influence of the great influenza pandemic on the, on the US economy. So again, offering perspective, I think is a big part of the value added. The other part, and, and perhaps more relevant to our discussion, is understanding the role that demographics play in the economy. And economists accept the fact that the economic growth potential of any economy boils down to how fast can you grow your workforce and how fast can you grow the productivity of your workforce. And as someone who first became acquainted with the, the connection with demographics, uh, back in the early 1990s, there was a book called The Age Wave and that talked uh, about that. And, and at uh, I was at Smith Barney at the time. We, we often said, to be a good investor, just follow the baby boomers. 
right? So when they, in the 1950s, you might've wanted to own toy stocks, then you wanted to own auto stocks and ultimately oh, yes. led you to find it. Right? What, what, what yes. are the baby doer, uh, boomers doing with their pocketbooks? So, so starting a good five plus years ago, I started including in my economic presentations a warning of the that a labor shortage was coming as the baby boomers were going to retire. And we simply didn't have enough births 20 or 30 years ago to adequately replace them and sustain the workforce needs of a growing economy. And in addition to outlining the problem, we started talking about the potential solutions. So I like to think that our customers have been better prepared because they have been hearing this drumbeat for the last five years. This is a structural labor shortage and not one of those passing COVID things that'll write itself automatically. Yeah, that, that is, that's fantastic. And, you know, if I look back, you know, just on my experience, you know, after the Navy coming out of the workforce, there were, there were a lot of disruptions that, that hit the economy, you know, it was the dot-com bubble. Then it was 9-11. Then after that was the 2007, 2008, which you talked about, you know, housing crisis and, then, then we have COVID hit. If you, if you look back on, on the time and the disruptions that you've seen, the disruptions happening, but what's been the impact to, to people and humans and how do you evaluate that? How have you seen things, have, are things the same? Have they sped up? What is it that you've seen from that time all the way to today? You know, I'm a believer in that aphorism. History may not repeat itself, but it rhymes. So there's certainly some similarities of each. You know, everything feels completely new, but is rarely completely new. It's it's usually a twist on something that's happened in the past. And it's important to be a an economic historian to to have that perspective and vision ahead. I, I will say one thing that does worry me is that in the midst of every recession, it always feels awful. In fact, usually at the turning point is, is when it feels the worst. I do worry broadly in society and specifically to economic thought about the role of social media and the fact that so many young people today feel their future will be worse. Yeah. And that they, and that's simply defies the reality of how economies work. And that kind of fatalism and pessimism just isn't mentally healthy. People should feel good about the future because the reason economies grow over time, if, if reasonably unfettered, you know, not, not socialist or communist systems, but, but if, or other kinds of authoritarian control systems, but the reason economies grow is you and I and everyone else who's in the workforce is trying to make lives better for ourselves and our families by offering a good or service of value to others. That's a pretty good definition of capitalism. That's the system that supports that. I've offered that at presentations. I was at a TEDx type talk and I, and I gave that definition of capitalism and people came up to me after and said, no, 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 that's socialism. And I'm like, no, it's not. This is, this is the heart of capitalism. It's, it's I'm free to offer something better that is of value to someone else that they're willing to pay for. And I'm always looking and all of us collectively in a economy, in a free market economy, are looking to develop something better 
to improve the lives of our customers. And that's how we advance and that's how economies grow. Love that definition. It's a great definition. And it, I, I, it, I it wish is, it were taught more widely. <laughs> well, it's the, it's the fuel, it's the fuel that drives the car. Yeah, o that's right. Optimism. I mean, not, not optimism and don't look at the brutal facts, Yeah. but, but this, you know, two shall pass or this, you know, storm's going to run out of rain, you know, just, just keep going. And, you know, one of the things that I, I, I think of is how much more connected we are connected. And I, I say that in quotes because, you know, social media is like, Hey, we are connected. But when, when I think about, you know, connected, I think we're way more connected as it relates to technology and, you know, the, the, the severity of, you know, what happened in 2007 and 2008, if it happened today, you know, even though it might on a scale of one to 10 might each be a seven on, on, on how bad it was. It, it seems like we're so connected today that the so connected today that the, you know, the severity would be way higher today than it was back in 2007, 2008. Are you well, seeing that? It, you know, it feels worse, right? I, I, I'm not sure it is necessary. I mean, right. that was a very That's, severe downturn. I, I don't want to take anything away from that. Right. But, but, but it, it, social media, as we all know, can become an echo chamber and it can amplify one's natural inclinations in unhealthy ways. And, you know, the, all of these social media companies have algorithms meant to keep our eyeballs glued right. to the screen. And, you know, one of the ways you do that is, you, you know, is you do those kits to the nervous system and the chemicals that, that affirm our emotions. And that can be very destructive. I mean, it's, it's, it's positively distressing to see young people who believe the world is on this collision course and a disaster. And I don't think it's economically accurate. And I, I don't think it's philosophically accurate. And I think it's, it's, it's frankly sad. People should feel brighter about the future. And frankly, those who do feel more constructive about the future are more likely to shape their own future in constructive ways. What is the solution for this? Uh, okay, that's above my pay grade. You know, I, I, I think, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I, it hasn't been an area of study for me. I mean, I, you have some interesting people like, I think Jonathan Haidt has been, um, H-A-I-D-T has been doing some interesting talks about the destructive role of social media. I may, I may be getting that, that wrong, but I think he's, he's one of the people who's been sounding the alarm on this and mental health professionals. And uh, ultimately, you know, we had, now I'm speaking just as a random citizen and not as an economist, uh, seems to me we have to build bonds in our society that are, have nothing to do with social media or social media can be a basic support network, but not the driver of those bonds. And, you know, this goes back to the, you know, that great book bowling alone and the, the loss of, you know, we don't have the, the clubs, the social clubs, the, you know, the, the, the beneficial clubs, the Elks lodges and, all of those are much smaller components of society today. There's lower levels of church attendance. You know, all of these things mean we're, we're failing to find ways to meet each other in constructive places. And I don't know what can replace that. I, I'm gratified when I look at my own children who are young men, two young men, 
They are not addicted to social media in any way, shape, form. They have other bonds, bonds through um, work, bonds through similar interests. As you know, my younger son is joining the Marines. His, his training and preparation for that, he's, he's come into contact with wonderful young people. And, you know, these are really important ways to pull together as a society, you know, at micro levels. Not everyone has to belong to the same thing, but people have to find areas of belonging that are constructive areas of belonging and not nihilistic or, or pessimistic areas of coming together. Yeah, I, I think you really hit on some great stuff. I mean, people want to belong to something bigger than themselves. The yes. challenge becomes is, and and look at I I have <clears throat> I have a faith, you know, you have a faith, and it's religion provided that for people. It did. It's the consistent every single Sunday I'm going, I'm gonna be with my people. That filled something that I think people still have a wanting. If they don't do that, they they find, you know, their community and whether that community is really strong or whether it's really more in a negative fashion, pe people want to fill that need. And it's such a powerful need. And we just got to redirect, the, we got to redirect and, and, the, the compass. And I think politics is a terrible substitute yes. because politics is, is an us versus them game. Most of these social organizations of the past or present, you know, whether you think about churches are about more than themselves and more than, they're not about winning against others. They're not competitive. They're about lifting others up, lifting ourselves up to be better people and to, to build better communities. Picking a side politically right. is not the same thing because you view it as a zero sum game. And, it, and that's not how our societies should be organized. They're not zero-sum games. They're opportunities to lift each other up and to all prosper. It's not at someone's expense, but politics is, is, is this zero-sum game. And, and you know that's fine. That's the nature of the beast. I'm not anti-politics at all, uh, but we should keep it, it, it. It shouldn't be what fulfills that need for belonging and togetherness. Yes. And that's, that's the point. It's such a powerful um, force that I believe is attached to every single one of our souls. I, I think you believe that also that purpose and whether that's religion, whether that's the local elk club, whether that's your pickleball, they they've shown yeah. that it's such a powerful force. And with social media being connected and people wanting to be connected to different groups, that's a great segue into, you talked about the interplay of culture and, and economics. The only way you're going to be able to, to really grow is through, you know, the, the humans, the human aspect of it. Yes. So, so let's take it down to that aspect. Give us your expertise and your knowledge on what that looks like for a company. Okay, sure. So what has happened over the years, we used to have an abundance of labor su supply. And you would see that one of the clearest ways to see that was looking at the number of job seekers in the economy, people who are unemployed but actively looking for a job, and the number of job openings. Historically, until 2018, the norm was we always had many more job seekers than job openings. So that created a condition where employers took labor for granted. And in fact, the ratio, particularly in the age of electronic application, the ratio of job applicants to job openings could become overwhelming 
a CEO in Dallas of a tech company told me that this was a couple of years ago. She, she said that she used to get 400 applicants for every job posting. Now, a lot of those applicants weren't serious. It was just someone set up some electronic resume or application site to, to apply for certain kinds of jobs. So how do, how do employers handle that kind of overwhelming volume of applications? You start putting restrictions on who you want to even consider. And sometimes this is informal. Sometimes it's just built into applicant tracking software. And what that's created is over time, it's kind of built in this stigma or preference or culture value about who's a good employee. Well, who's a good employee? Uh, you better have a degree. Maybe you better have an advanced degree. And that's not consistent with the data. That's not necessarily what makes a good employee. So employers now are starting to switch to skills-based hiring. But there's this stigma. If you have two candidates who look very similar, there's still probably a preference for one has a college degree, one does not. Even if the college, uh, the non-college degree candidate is a little bit better, you might have the preference for, well, this one has a college degree. Or you started to think of absences from employment. So a typical screen out would be six months or more of no employment. Let's not look at that resume. Well, it might be someone who left to raise children. It might be someone who left to take care of an ailing parent. Why would you overlook talent for something that really we view as quite admirable thing to do? or perhaps a, a, you know, a family necessity that, that people require. So these are the kind of cultural issues that, that have been born from very bad roots. It's, it's not necessarily fact-based. It's just based on kind of habit and uh, particularly this, this misread of data that the way to advance your workforce is to make sure everyone has, a, has the highest advanced education degree possible um, was a terrible misread of data. Um, and encourage people to um, fetishize a college degree. I, look, I, I think a college degree is great if it's a good fit for a person, but it's not a good fit for everyone. And so we have this terrible system where it's interesting. I was looking, I was talking to some about some international comparisons uh, with Switzerland, which has a great apprenticeship program. And I'm, I'm going to go out on the limb and assume that the person who told me this, who, who happens to be one of our regional presidents who was on a, uh, a mission to, to Switzerland. I'm, I'm, I haven't checked the data myself, which is what I normally do. I'm gonna assume that I was told accurate information. Something like 30% of people have college degrees in Switzerland, very successful economy. Here, we also have about 30% of people have college, they have bachelor's degrees or higher. The difference is we start out by sending 70% to college, but half of them don't successfully get a degree. And so we waste people's time, money, and then they come out with the stigma of not having a college degree. Instead, countries that have great, uh, much more developed apprenticeship programs, whether it's a Germany or I, the Swiss program sounds a little bit more appealing because it's, it's a little bit more voluntary, yeah, you, you don't. You don't end up with people with needless debt, right? That you know the tragedy they always say is that don't worry about the person with a hundred thousand in college debt because that's someone who might have a medical degree or a law degree and have earnings power. Worry about the person with ten thousand in student debt because that's someone who started a degree and didn't finish. 
and so now has the deck without the, the without the credential. And so, so we really have to rethink what we value as employers and get over some of the cultural stigma that that have been built into our systems over time. And of course, you know, the the largest one is against people with criminal records. You know, that's that because that's the largest stigma out there and because there's data, good data that shows it shouldn't define a worker. That's the one that I have at least started with and have focused the most on because it's the most overlooked talent opportunity in the United States. That was, that was great information. You know, when there's tremendous success, a lot of the systems and frameworks that are part of that success really get overlooked. And so when you have this, this, uh, excess, you know, 400 people applying for, for a job, you're like, Hey, it's working. That same CEO said that she now gets one applicant per opening. You said this term, you said skills based. Can you share with us what that is? My belief is if CEOs truly understood what was going on in the labor market, they'd list workforce as their number one. It's more important than the complexity of this world. Too many CEOs, I've been on panels with some, think this is one of those passing COVID things. And, you know, like so many other things, supply chain issues, you know, it'll clear up. This isn't going to clear up. So, so one of the solutions, right, is to make sure, obviously, that you're getting the best person for any role. And that best person has often been defined by the wrong criteria. They were defined by markers of success like a college degree. Skills-based hiring is the looking beyond markers of ability to actual abilities, proven abilities. So very often this is work experience, apprenticeship experience, certifications that are very focused on actual training needed. I, I uh, you know, I, I, I didn't mean to dis dismiss higher education. It's great for some, but I would also add that community colleges play such an incredibly important role. And we have been measuring their success wrong. We've been measuring their success too often by how many people go on to get four-year degrees. Instead, we should be measuring who, how many complete certificate programs or, or things that, that are evidence of actual skills. There's some wonderful work being done out of the uh, Richmond Federal Reserve Bank that's looking to reclassify how we view the success of community colleges. When you talk about the, the structure and the apprenticeship, one of the things that we are um, advising our clients and advising our community is that um, you need to have an apprenticeship program with inside of your company, not only yes. with outside. So we are, we are really touting that companies, if they don't have it already set up, they should have a university that's a ladder-based approach to success. And I, I just hearken back to my experience in the submarine force. When I was 22 years old, I didn't know nothing. I knew nothing. I didn't know nothing. That doesn't sound right, but I, I didn't know, I didn't know anything about nuclear power, but they had a ladder-based approach that allowed me to go from one rung of the ladder to the next rung of the ladder. And what they were hiring me for when they, when they looked at what I was, you know, could I be a nuclear submarine officer? What they were hiring me for was really more of my values and some, and some of the, some of the skills I had in physics and mechanical engineering, but 
they were they were looking for those things first and then they were going to take control of it and and bring it internal and then ladder it and they have a ladder all the way up to junior officer to department head to executive officer to commanding officer over a 20 year period and they've had to do that for that reason so we are we are leaning heavily into that what are what's your thoughts on that and opinions as it relates to for companies you know and that's a great parallel, a great analogy. I, you know, I think the military is way ahead of this skills-based training. I, I completely agree that companies have to devote more energy to training internally that they used to. This all got cut back, I believe in the 1990s when a lot of this got abandoned because the fear was, well, I'll train someone and they'll just get hired away. So I'm training people for my competitors. And, you know, I think that's, there's some legitimacy to that concern, but on the other hand, you better figure out something. And in this labor starved world, not only do you have to grow the productivity of your own workforce, we know from several surveys that have been out there that workers expect help in their careers. So if you're not offering it, you're going to lose them. Yeah. If you offer it, you will lose some, but that's just the nature of the beast. You made a point earlier, Mark, that I just want to highlight talking about the Navy hired you based on character and aptitude. And that's something that I think we in the business community don't always think about enough. But ultimately, hiring is a lot about character. You know, the worst thing that can happen is not someone who is not as good at his job as you hoped. It's someone who does the wrong thing. And that that Down, protecting that downside risk is really important. The other thing is people of character tend to be people who can adapt in ways that the job market is going to require. If you think about all those, you know, millions of jobs out there today that didn't exist 20 years ago. So think about, you know, data analysis for marketing. So many of those jobs, you know, anything to do with big data and marketing didn't exist in any meaningful way 20 and 30 years ago. You know, maybe it was in its infancy. And those are big jobs now. All of these things that rely on new technologies, you know, anything to do with the electric vehicle industry, all of these jobs are new jobs that didn't exist. And change is rapid in our economy. So you need people who are not just skilled for a specific job. You need people who can grow their skills and adapt and have that kind of resiliency and the stick-to-itiveness to to tackle those challenges. And to me, a lot of that is character issues. Yeah, that's great. The one, you know, I forgot who said it, but you know, hire for values, train for skill. Yeah, it's a lot easier. It's a lot easier to, and you know, there's different values that make up a culture. So there's it's not like, hey, well, you don't belong in this culture, that one, but there are ones that you more align with. And the ability to be able to to do that. If you have an internal university, we believe that, you know, there's internal mobility, you know, Hey, I want to, I want to really do this other thing instead of leaving the company. And you got someone who's got these great values, train them internally and, 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 you know, protect that, that human asset, you know, with, with inside. I'd like to shift over to the work that you've been doing and, you know, certainly you're very passionate as an economist and, and helping you know, clients of the bank, but talk to us about your work and where you think the greatest opportunity is for the United States economy. The, the 
given that the labor shortage is the biggest constraint on the economy, the biggest opportunity is to look at the people who are the most overlooked. And that happens to be people who are overlooked from the workforce because, uh, or for economic advancement because they have a criminal record, because they made a mistake in the past that has resulted in a conviction record. And that is precluding them from either employment or more typically, they're kind of stuck in low level jobs and given no opportunities to advance. And the number is so big and the pool is so vast that although not all of them will be good employees, there's millions who are underemployed or unemployed in that group who we should be viewing as a resource for, for our economy. So, so, so talk to us about where this all started, how long ago this started with you, and then talk to us about what you've been learning and, and share that, please. It, it began over a decade ago. And where I started with was an understanding that the opioid epidemic was more than this awful social tragedy, but it was actually a macro macroeconomic issue because the opioid epidemic was so widespread that it was actually impacting our economy. And a decade ago, economists were, were yeah, noticed, a, I think more than a curiosity, but, but noticed that our labor force participation rate, particularly among men and young men, was terrible compared to historic standards. So we were missing a lot of people, particularly young men, from the workforce compared to historic norms. What, in what year and is this? The, 20, 2013. 2013. 2013. And knowing that a labor shortage was coming just based on demographics, and no, I think 2013 was the year that the very first baby boomer started to retire. It was you know just a trickle then and became a, a flood during the COVID. Knowing that, I was just kind of curious and I was trying to figure out why are we missing so many people? And our falling labor force participation rate was, you know, widely talked about and, and people politicized it unnecessarily. But half of it was just due to people aging out of the workforce. But the rest of it was unexplained. And I, I do, as part of my professional role, I've done these CEO roundtables in different cities where we gather a group of typically middle market CEOs, sometimes some as five, a Fortune 500 size companies. And we just talk about the economy over breakfast. I kept hearing about the problem of being able to find people who can pass a drug test, which matters a lot in the manufacturing economy, the transportation economy, healthcare economy. You know, these are, these are issues where being drug-free is really important. And I remember being in Lexington, Kentucky at one of these meetings around CEOs, and they brought up the drug issue. And I said, so what is it, pot? And everyone looked at me like I was crazy and said, no, pills. And I was like, what? <laughs> And at the time, outside of places where it was really impacting like Kentucky or West Virginia or Eastern Ohio, people didn't really understand the opioid epidemic. And so I started poking around and getting what data, limited data was available. And then very, very fortuitously, um, the late Alan Kruger, a very prominent economist, uh, did some survey work that showed that opioid use was a big part of you know, he didn't say causal, but, but, but closely associated with being, not being in the workforce and that there were, I believe, uh, you know, the numbers were something like 1.4 million men who weren't in the workforce who were working age reported that they were taking opioids at least daily. Uh, so, and then we started looking at SSI data, you know, so SSI roles were, 
were going up, you know. And so I remember assuming, well, it's just because the population is aging, people are more likely to have, you know, workforce injuries and, and things like that as they get older. And I had one of the people who worked on my team at the time said, I think drugs are playing a role. And so I dug into the data and found that young people were increasingly on SSI. And I said, well, how can this be? Addiction is not something you can use to, to, to get on uh, this benefit. Uh, so I Googled, how do I use my addiction to get on SSI? 50 websites showed up. All about how well you're going to get so much, you're going to get damage to your internal organs as an addict. So you can use that to get on, you know, all the, all this thing. And it became evident to me that, that the opioid epidemic was one of the things sapping our workforce in, in a very large way. So at Health and Human Services, last I saw the number estimated that something like 10 or 11 million Americans were taking opioids for non-medicinal purposes. And of those, maybe two to three would be what we think of as addicts. But anyone, you know, even if you're not strictly addicted, you're not able to work in a environment that requires a drug-free environment for workplace safety. And, you know, you're, you're on a bad track and you're likely not to be operating and f- fulfilling your potential in the economy. So once, you can, once I saw that social ills can be macroeconomic problems, you can't unsee that. And next stop was long-term unemployment. Again, I, you know, Alan Kruger did a study with the Brookings Institution that actually tracked people who lose their job, what happens to them. Because we have very high elevated levels of long-term unemployment, people unemployed for over six months following that 08, 09 financial crisis. Uh, it became evident that the longer you're out of the workforce, the more likely you are to drop out completely. Or the longer you're unemployed, the more likely you are to simply drop out of the workforce. And we've probably lost another million people from the workforce because of that. And then you, you can't go very far down that road without noticing that having justice system involvement, having a conviction record, and sometimes even an arrest record, really did bad things to your employability. So by 2013, 2014, I felt I had identified the problem. Our, our workforce problem was, it was social ills and interconnected. You know, long-term unemployment leads to despair, despair, people self-medicate with opioids. You, if you become addicted to opioids, you, you are bound to get or highly likely to get a criminal conviction. And then in 2015, I happened upon the solution. And my niece in Asheville, or my wife's niece in Asheville, North Carolina said, next time you're in Charlotte, go see, go to this place called the King's Kitchen, still around. It's a, a nonprofit restaurant owned by the top restaurateur of, of Charlotte, uh, Jim Noble is fabulous, has fabulous restaurants. He started this up to take people off the streets, take people from prison, take people who are recovering addicts, take anyone who wants a second chance to rebuild their lives. And I had dinner there and it was fantastic. And I said, this is really interesting. And I started talking about that experience and people started pointing me towards other organizations that did similar work. And the, the, the biggest breakthrough was I was introduced to Dan Meyer, the CEO of a company called Nehemiah Manufacturing. At the time, no one had studied Nehemiah. It's a for-profit consumer goods manufacturing company. At the time, no, no academic had studied them. Then one person at University of Cincinnati had written a master's thesis about them. I tracked that former student down and got their master's thesis. 
but they, they didn't get any attention. Now, I, I will share with you, Harvard Business Review in 2018 did a case study of them. It's required reading for all MBA students at Harvard. It's being taught now at Stanford. It's part of the Leadership and Society, excuse me, the Advanced Leadership Institute at Harvard uh, as well. And it deserves to be taught because they started early on building a company and they, because they were asked by a nonprofit, they, they hired their first person with a felony conviction. And by the way, it didn't work. And that bothered the CEO. What am I missing? And he started building up an infrastructure to attract talent from this pool and to support them in ways they became great employees. So he has a turnover rate that would be the envy of the consumer products manufacturing business. And that saves him a lot of money, makes him very profitable. It's for profit. Today, uh, roughly 170 of their 230 employees are second chance. People with record criminal records, sometimes people just with addiction recovery and no records, but overwhelmingly people with with uh, convictions, including just about every kind of felony conviction out there. And he's developed a great and profitable company in this space. And so I learned so much from Dan. And then I started seeking out other companies. And I, I, I got to I got to stop. Yeah, you yeah, right there. Sorry, yeah, no, no, no. Uh, my my gosh, yeah. it is so fascinating. But yeah. I. I can just imagine the person, like you said, they have 170 of their over 200 employees are from this second chance background. And I can just try to put myself in that person's position. No one else has given me any type of opportunity. No one. Because of the system, because of the, you know, the, the legacy approach to this. And then this, this person gives me a chance. I mean, how much loyalty and emotional yes. goodwill has that person built up? And to, to keep people connected, like when things get tough or there's an issue, hey, you know what? They gave, they gave me a chance. I mean, it's, it, it, it must be just so it, powerful. It, it is. And, and it's also to Dan's credit, Dan Meyer's credit, that he views this as a family. They stuff kids' backpacks before the school year starts. They have an annual barbecue. He, 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 and so it, it's given people a sense of belonging and place that is very, very powerful. So it shows up as, a, from a business perspective, this shows up as productive employees because they're very engaged, they care about their job, and they're very loyal. Yeah, and, and, that's, and add that's to the that. model. Yeah, and add, add to that, some of these people, you know, who find themselves in a certain situation and have had a record or have uh, spent time in jail, a lot of times they didn't have the best upbringing. And yeah, that's ima right. imagine going like, Hey, you know, I, I, I want, I want to have that thing over there. I, I just, I never was, it was never modeled for me. That, that's exactly right. And, and, and the engine that drives this is the natural, I think, human trait that if we fall out, all of us, whether it's has anything to do with a criminal conviction or not, have had times in our lives where we are less than we think we should be. We have, we have fallen people of character, and that includes people from all kinds of backgrounds, including those who commit convictions. There are people of character who say, okay, I'm gonna pick myself up and redouble my efforts to prove that I am more than my worst mistakes. And that's the engine that drives this if you set it up right. And you know, Dan set it up right, and I started seeking out these companies and I, and I found, you know, perhaps to my surprise and perhaps to their surprise, 
that you know these companies by and large didn't know each other, but they all came up with the same model. And so you know it was towards the end where I could walk into an em- another employer who was doing it right and talk to them knowledgeably. And I, I, I one guy, an EVP of a of a manufacturing company in Georgia, kind of looked at me and say, "Wow, you really know what you you really do know this," <laughs> and and to, to his surprise. And and so that's been the focus of my work is understanding the model of success because there are lots of ways to hire people with criminal convictions and not have it work, but understanding what you have to do to make it work and sharing that as one of the solutions to the labor shortage. I think Butterball was involved with this and a bunch of other companies. Can you share the innovative approach that they took and the three, the three things that they talked about, about how to make this be successful? Uh, you know, I, I'll give you the example. Butterball Farms is a butter manufacturer, food manufacturer in Western Michigan, Grand Rapids. They, they used to be, I believe, associated with the Butterball Turkey, but sold the rights to that. So they are, if you're in a restaurant and, and see flavored butter, you know, truffle butter or something, it may well be produced by, by Butterball Farms. They started addressing this as a labor shortage and found that while they could find people who were ready to be good employees, they didn't have the scale for the support network. So uh, Mark Peters, the CEO, very innovative, got together with other businesses in Western Michigan and said, let's let's start a private social worker network that can address the needs of this population. It's called The Source. It's, It's in Grand Rapids. And it's professional social workers who do company visits. It's kind of like an expanded EAP for companies that have an EAP, but one that is much more involved and, and I think effective because they come to the place of business. And the uh, business has decided, they're obviously funding this, that they should fund this as an investment and you want to make sure you have a return on their investment. So they've created a formula for judging what are they getting out of this? And essentially the, their formula is if a single employee reaches out and touches this network, I believe it's three times a year, that's someone who would have been derailed otherwise. If you're relying on this network, you are in some kind of distress. You know, your car broke down, you can't afford the repair. You have an aging parent who needs assistance and you're going to have to drop out of the workforce to take care of them. Um, all of these things are solutions that the source can provide for. So if an employee touches them three times and it's still there, they assume that's a job saved. They know their turnover costs. And it turns out that if you apply the job saved metric to the cost of investment, it's better than a 200% return on investment. So that's one of the really innovative things, but you see member company or companies like Nehemiah I mentioned before, they have social workers instead of HR professionals. There's a company in Western California, uh, in, in the Western California, that has essentially an industrial psychologist as a consultant. JBM Packaging is a great Ohio-based company that I've written about extensively in my book. It's kind of a case study chapter I wrote that has a, uh, a life coach on staff. And it's not just for the employees with criminal records, it's for every employee, but it's critical or many of the employees with, with, with criminal records because of all the barriers they face and, and all the limits they have on what they can be and, and what they know. Yeah, you, you brought up our number. People are from deep poverty and particularly those with criminal records think they can't be more than what they are. They don't know what's possible. And there are also the innovative solutions. Uh, my, my friend, Mary Hayes, has a company called WorkBay that has tablet-based training programs in prison 
where they can see what day in the life of an electrician. So they get to see visually what different careers would look like and is offering opportunity to people who thought they had no opportunity. Yeah, I love the I love the support structure that's provided. When we were talking the other day, you had shared and you, you touched out upon it here was, you know, things might be going really well, but they're worried that they're going to fall back into their own habits and little bumps in the road that a typical human being would just get over. The consortium and group found out that, hey, we need to provide something additional so that they can, you know, start getting this mentally in their mind. And, you know, after they establish it as a habit and establish it as a belief in themselves. I mean, I can't just tell you right now, hey, you're, you're fine. Everything's good, right? You're going to yeah. go like, oh, I got 20 years of stuff that has been going through my mind that I'm not. And so I, I, I find that it's um, very, very powerful that they were able to see that. And, and, and that's one of the keys. Be involved. Yeah. I mean, employees have to be involved. Hey, you know, if I can give one other example, uh, Ray Dalton is a serial entrepreneur, incredibly successful, runs a business called Relink Medical and typically has about a quarter of his workforce as second chance. And he lost, one of his employees stopped showing up. Turned out this employee prior to going into prison had a bunch of traffic fines, motor vehicle related fines that he couldn't afford to pay off. And they multiplied over time in prison so he couldn't get a driver's license. So he was driving without a license. He got caught. His parole was revoked over a couple hundred dollars of fines. So now this company, Relic, as part of their intake, says, do you have any outstanding fines? And this is something Nehemiah does as well. What are your financial obligations that may stand in the way? And, you know, there are ways to work through these things, but employers have to be involved. I, yeah, I mean, I'm going to go back and one last point, Mark, and forgive me for going on, but obviously I'm pretty passionate about this. Go um, on, go on. You, 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 brought, you brought up, we should do this anyway, because it's the right thing to do. But for too long, the only people doing this were policymakers and nonprofits. And I applaud their work. But there's certain things that only the business community can do, and that is provide a job. The other thing is business, the business community are great problem solvers, and we have not had that, those skills of the business community applied to this problem until now. And so, you know, I, I'm thrilled to be, you know, through my book and my other writing and speaking, I'm thrilled to just be the person who elevates the great work being done and shares the great work being done by the business community in this regard. I agree with you. I think nonprofits, one of the things I think they've done a, a fantastic job on is certainly there's a lot of impact being made, but it's very simple. If I want to get involved in a nonprofit, I can connect my effort and what I do. I can connect to how it impacts another human being. You can look at anything. The one challenge that I think all nonprofits have is, is the funding of it. And, and so often they're like, I, I just got to get that grant at the end of the year from the foundation, and then we're going to be good. And then the, the, I found the best nonprofits that I've been involved with are the ones who run it like a for-profit. Right. Right. And, and you also often find that people in the nonprofit world have only been in the nonprofit world and don't necessarily understand the business perspective. So one of the things I like to think my work has brought to this discussion is just hammering home the, the reality that if businesses hear an idea they like, they'll write a check. 
and they hear the cause. But the only people that they'll hire are people who can add value to their enterprise. They're not going to hire someone who's not a good employee because it's quote unquote the right thing to do or because it's a societal need. That's not how they operate. Dan Meyer often says, you know, these social service nonprofits are used to having clients, the, the people they serve, but they should also recognize they have customers, the employers. And that's a shift in mindset. Some nonprofits have been absolute leaders in this, you know, uh, Project Return in Nashville have, have done a wonderful job in this. Uh, Hope for Prisoners in, in Las Vegas do a great job linking to the business community, but but some have not. And, you know, the other problem is what gets measured gets managed. And if you're measuring as a nonprofit, your success is measured as number of placements, not longevity in a job. That sets up a very bad incentive. You know, oh, I've placed someone. They don't last a week. Ah, I get to place them again. That's that's not a model for long term success and and solving this problem. I believe it was Shaw Industries wanted to know more about it. So and Shaw talk Industries, talk to us about yeah, what they did. Sure. Yeah. So Shaw, Shaw Industries is um, one of the largest carpet manufacturers in the world. They're the portfolio company of Berkshire Hathaway. So so uh, Warren what uh, they're a Warren Buffett company. So no fools they 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 got involved with this in part because the director of talent heard me speak for the Georgia Association of Manufacturers. They're a Georgia headquartered company. They have realized there's kind of three tiers you need to solve this problem. Tier number one, you got to get a culture at the top that is inclusive and open to this kind of innovation, which they had in spades. But then you need the people who actually have to implement this. You know, who reviews the, the, the backgrounds? What do, you know, all these like intricacies of the hiring process you know, how is an application that checks the box or comes back with a criminal record if it's a not the check the box, uh, if it's a ban the box state, who evaluates this and what are their incentives? And to do that, they uh, joined one of these cohort programs. This one was run by the Davis Killer Bread Foundation. It's now part of JFF, Jobs for the Future, where they get businesses together and train them together, train the implementers. Here's what you need to know. And these are great programs. I've been involved with one in Chicago, run by the Corporate Coalition of Chicago, where the curriculum was joined, uh, was created pro bono by the Boston Consulting Group. So there's these great programs out there. But then I, I think the genius at Shaw was to realize it's not just training the implementers. It's not just getting the top. It's all the people who are going to get touched with this. PR and marketing. You know, well, how, how do you answer questions? Or do you get behind this and... and Use it as a feature, not a bug. Do you, what should supervisors know? Why is this employee leaving, you know, one Friday a month leaves for two hours? Well, to meet a parole officer. How do, how do you handle all of these issues at every stage? So they created this advisory council, a large advisory council that cuts across all these lines, legal department people in it. And um, I'm very proud to say that they use as part of their curriculum for this reading for this group is to use my book on tap talent to kind of educate themselves and, and uh, as, as a basis for talking about the issues that are going to affect their company and their workplace. So let's, let's shift to untapped talent. It's a book you were inspired to write. Why did you write it? And what's been the impact? So Partially written out of necessity. By 2018, all this warning of the work coming labor shortage was starting to, to uh, get some traction. And uh, by 2019, I had uh, was in such demand as a speaker on this topic, I flew 141 flight segments and was 
prior to COVID coming and changing the our world, I was actually scheduled to have an even busier year. And I was just at, at capacity. So number one, I needed a way to leverage the knowledge that I had gained. Number two, I had found that I could be in a room of CEOs, make the case, and they would get really interested. They'd go back to their workplace and then they'd run into inertia because they didn't have enough facts to drive the conversation forward. So typically their chief legal officer or their chief HR officer would push back. One CEO incidentally pushed back. He got so much pushback, he ended up firing his legal officer and his head of HR asked me to come in to speak to the new team. I brought Dan Meyer from Nehemiah, Nehemiah very generously came, uh, came with me, took a day off work. The new team was incidentally much more receptive as, as you would expect. I probably, but, yeah. <laughs> but, but I realized people need, they need examples, they need data, they need all of these things to legitimize it. So a book, a particular book from a prestigious business publisher like HarperCollins Leadership, which is my imprint, my publisher's imprint, could help that cause. And then the final one was I, I, because I was a banker and a financial services professional my whole career, I wasn't always taken seriously. I, I couldn't get traction because people, you know, one uh, moderator from a very prominent nonprofit said, you know, they, they told me to put you on the panel. My first reaction was, what does a banker know about this? And, you know, now we have a great relationship. So I wanted a seat at the table because I thought I had a body of knowledge that would make our, our, our country better and would benefit the business community as well as the com other communities. And the book was a way to, 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 to get access to that, that discussion. And uh, is your book on Amazon? It is on Amazon. Um, I have a website, jeffkorzenik.com, J-E-F-F-K-O-R-Z-E-N-I-K. I happen to be the only Jeff Korzenik in the known universe. So if you can get close to the spelling, yeah, you, know, you, can, you can find it. And there's a link also to books, uh, not just on Amazon, but to uh, Barnes and Nobles and even a way to buy through your local independent bookseller. That's great. All right. So as we wrap up, I always end with the same question. You know, for those people who are listening right now, what's one thing that they can do to surface the leader inside of themselves? Wow, tough question. I sought out professional help. I, I hire as an executive coach. If you find the right one, it's amazing. It's transformational. I, I was very fortunate. I did this 20 odd years ago. I met a gentleman who was a retired CEO who was a full-time coach hired him not just for me, but also for my management team. And it really uh, transformed. Also, I'm a great believer in reading about this, you know, from good, good to great is, a, is something I've had others, you know, suggested others read. I, I, I read about leading change. This is an old book, but still relevant. Uh, Crossing the Chasm talks about ado adoption of change. You know, these, these are really, there's really important work that you can learn from reading as well. But ultimately, you want a coach or a mentor in your life who's done it well and, and not only finding that person, but being coachable is obviously key. Jeff, our conversation has been so rich today. I mean, when I first saw you uh, speaking at the panel and I was like, here's the economist. And I'm like, oh, he's just going to drown us with numbers. <laughs> like he, he has, there's no way he has a heart. There's no way. Right. And you know, the experiences that you had, even as, you know, if you think about your executive coaching that you received, it, 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 it really plays into this. What summarizes it for me, for you is, is really second chance. 
because had you not had the ability to have these skills and tools, then you weren't able to propagate it out. And I, I think the work that you're doing is extremely powerful and the experience that you had to show and not only just think about it, talk about it, hear, hear about it, but to really experience it, the, the power of purpose and the power of a job and, and the dignity and this second chance. And I know you know this, but if you help someone that they have a, they have a second chance, the legacy down their family tree most likely is not going to have people who need a second chance. And the impact that that has for our communities, the impact that it has for other human beings, um, the impact that that has for our society in um, overall is just so powerful, so impactful. I want to thank you for the work that you're doing, the removing of barriers, the tremendous opportunity to create pathways for success. I've learned a lot today, and I know our listeners are going to learn a lot. So thank you so much for your time today on the Servicing Leaders Podcast. Thank you so much, and thanks to all your listeners for for tuning in. Thanks for joining Mark today. And remember, new episodes of Servicing Leaders will be available every other week where you can become inspired, gain confidence, and learn leadership right where you are. Until next time, make it a great day.